You are now listening to the Minority Trailblazer Podcast. Let the story begin. One time for the lovers, two times for the ladies, three times for the brothers, four times for the babies. Do you love her? 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 One time for the lovers, two times for the ladies, three times for the brothers, four times for the babies. Do you love her? 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 Brown skin, love a brown skin, love a brown. Brown skin, love a brown skin, love a brown. She my brown skin, love a brown skin, love a brown. She my brown skin, love a brown skin. Hold me down. Yeah. Welcome to the Minority Trailblazer Podcast, and I'm your host Greg Ehill, the Culture Change Agent. On this show, we interview young, successful minorities in a variety of fields to educate, empower, and inspire our current and future generation of leaders. And as always, I got a show for you today. I am incredibly excited about our guest today. One, I love her accent because I know anybody, anybody knows me or knows the podcast. Anytime I get an opportunity to interview somebody from the UK, I just get excited. Like the podcast is always on 10 because it, I don't know, something about their voice just makes me chipper. It makes me excited. It makes me happy. So I'm, I'm excited to bring her on and more so too. Because her story is so dynamic from, from dancing to what she does on the digital space to coaching and the consulting. I'm like, this, it doesn't make sense. Like when I first started researching her before I even, uh, invited her to be on the show, it, I thought there were two different people. Cause I'm looking online. I'm saying like, okay, cool. The dance and choreography. And then I look online. I see the digital space. I'm like, digital stuff is, is kind of complex. I mean, outside of like storytelling and crafting, the stuff that she does digital is not just simply that and how she's been able to grow a team and all the other good stuff. I said, yo, she will be a dope person to have on the show. And I'm going to read a snippet of her bio. She is a powerhouse in the world of creative entrepreneurship and professional dance. She started out as a dancer for Madonna before working as a choreographer. As a professional dancer, she worked alongside high profile artists and brands in every aspect of the industry. Television, pop promo, live events, theater, advertising, education, all that good stuff. And nowadays she runs Doodle Direct, which is a fast moving visual communications firm that makes slick animated videos to boost companies internal and external communication. Doodle Direct has done work for major clients like Knight Frank, Vauxhall, and the Food Standards Agency. And their success was acknowledged last year when she won the Arts and Media Rising Star Award at the 2017 Black British Business Award. So without further ado, I would like to introduce Kimberly J to the Minority Trailblazer podcast. Welcome to the show. Hey, thank you so much. Oh my God, you're brilliant. <laughs> you're just so brilliant. I am so happy to be here. This Yay. is foul. <laughs> and side note, it's like 9.30 a.m. US, U.S. time. For our viewers and guests, what time is it over there in the U.K.? It is 2.30 p.m. Oh. So uh, it's, it's afternoon tea time over here in the U.K. <laughs> so quick question. What, is that, what does that mean? Because I always hear like afternoon tea, <laughs> tea times, biscuits and tea. Like what, is that, what does that mean? Can you break it down for our U.S. audience? It's like an excuse to eat cookies and make, not feel guilty about it, basically. Do, do you really do uh, that? We really do that. <laughs> it's a little more traditional, I guess. I don't suppose we do it as often. But I can remember being a kid and that being something that, you know, you stop, you have a cup of tea, you eat biscuits or cookies, as we as you call them, 
Um, and yeah, and everyone feels great. That's a thing. So yeah, I'm just grateful we we finally connected. Yes, I mean we. I'm I'm, I'm crashing cars. I'm you chipping tubes, right? <laughs> I'm like, man, it must be bad luck. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> Well, no, it's awesome. We finally done it. Yeah. Yes, yes. I'm grateful. I'm grateful and honored for your time, and I'm, I'm thankful for your flexibility. You know, I'm luckily entrepreneurs always have a spirit of flexibility and adjustments because you know things happen on the fly. But I'm happy to have you on the show now. Thank you. It's great to be on the show. Got you. And I, and, I, and like I always said, I think I've had three people from the UK ever on the show, and I just always love talking to people in the UK because the accent is so. <laughs> Like it's like yo, <laughs> I always envy that. I wish I, I wish they had. I hopefully like in twenty years or fifty years, you can like pay like a hundred dollars and this guy put the chip in, and I can have a British accent for like an you hour want, a day. You want a silly British accent as well, do you? Yeah. <laughs> it always makes you sound more chipper or more of an asshole. Like it's either chipper yep. or asshole. Yeah, <laughs> we've got that nailed. <laughs> and I got a selfish question before we even enter this. I'm a huge boxing fan, like. Huge boxing fan. Are you familiar with the boxing scene in the UK? Vaguely, yes. So do you know who Anthony Joshua is? I certainly do, yes. Are you a big fan of Anthony Joshua? (laughs) I am a fan of Anthony Joshua, yeah. He's done some brilliant things, not only as a boxer, but also as a role model for young people within sports. So he's done some really, really cool things. Um, And interesting story, I am very remotely related to him. Are you serious? (laughs) Yeah, via marriage. But <laughs> very remotely related. I've never met him, uh-huh. but I, I found out quite recently that I am remotely related to him in that his father-in-law is married to my aunt. Oh, wow. So that, that, <laughs> I mean, that's seriously, that is like, so you're not like some distant, 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 distant cousin. <laughs> no, it's not that distant. Okay. Wow. Uh, that's yeah. crazy. That's crazy. Cause I, I, I'm just, cause I'm a huge boxing fan. I rock with Anthony Joshua. I just want him to fight Deontay Wilder. Like when is he going to yeah. fight Deontay? Cause that's been <laughs> such a big beef back and forth. Eddie Hearn, Matthew Boxing, the lives. Like when they fight, I'm, if they fight in the UK, I'm coming to the UK. I got to yeah. go to the fight. Okay. Right. <laughs> because I mean, but I'm like, you got to fight, you got to fight Deontay Wilder, man. Like what you doing? De- uh, but that's either here or there. I can go on a whole nother rant about that. But, uh, <laughs> But um, as we always do, everybody that follows the show, we always try to show off with a quote or a mantra from our guests to really get the direction of the show going and, and get the energy up, which is already up. So if you could share with us, Kimberly, a quote or a mantra that you live by and a story about how you apply that in your everyday life. Um, yeah, so I tend not to do quotes um, because there are a million of them on Instagram and they all feel completely disingenuous now. Um, but a mantra that I do live by is that no is not an option. Mm. No is not an option. There is no option for no. If you want it, you go and you get it. There is absolutely no option but to go and do what it is that either you love or that you dream or that you're passionate about. And there's been many, many times when I've been told no. Um, It started off from being quite young, actually, of course, you know, with parents, etc., not necessarily believing in the the ideas and the goals and the dreams that I had because they were being parents and because Mm -hmm. they were being, you know, they wanted to protect me. Um, But no wasn't an option for me at, you know, 15, 16 years old. I still wanted to go ahead and do what it was that I wanted to do. And I went ahead and I did it. And from that point onwards, I've been yeah pretty much I would say 100% you know full force going at it 
there's no i don't i don't believe in the word no gotcha. I, I, I won't accept it <laughs> so if you could tell us like when's the last time you've heard i don't know you like shoot i heard no yesterday but when's the last time you heard no outside of like maybe with your children or something like that like when's the last time you heard no and that you was like, yeah, okay, cool. And you and you figured out a way and you pivoted around it. When was the last time I heard the word no? That's a really good question. Um Are you big time now? Hey, no is not no yeah. no don't no don't come no more, right? <laughs> I think maybe it's just that I've, you know, I've completely blocked it out. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I don't hear the word. <laughs> uh, so it's like so, so something happens and be like, nah, we can't do it right now. It's like, okay, cool. And it's just y- your mind now is mapped to not necessarily hear the no, but I always look for the other door. Find the solution. Mm-hmm. Find the solution to the problem. That is exactly what it is, you know, and there's always a solution. Um, and even when you think that there isn't a solution, there is a solution. There is a way around everything. Um, similarly, when people believe that, you know, right, we've got to stop this because this has failed or this is this doesn't work anymore. Actually, it's about rerouting the path. It's not about whether or not it's failed. Failure is another word that doesn't exist in my vocabulary. It's about rerouting, replanning and starting again and just going for it, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's about finding it's got to be a problem solver as an entrepreneur. And, you know, in life, you've got to solve the problem and the problem can be solved. Mm, I love that. I'm just going to leave that there. And I hope for our audience right there that that alone is worth the price of admission to this podcast. Like, cause I know, <laughs> cause seriously, cause I know so many people right now that's listening, that's listening to our voices right now that are, when, when you stop listening to this podcast, there's going to be a problem, whether it's in life, whether it's in business, et cetera, right in front of you. And that problem for some people may have been an hour for that, for the problem. Some of you might, you, it's been on your mind for a month. For some of you, it might've been on your mind for a whole year, years. And it's like, hold up, just reroute it. Like, there's another way that there's more doors in that house. But before we kind of get into that preaching, because I know you could probably take it in. Let's go back to your, <laughs> let's go back to your story because you have a a plethora of different unique experiences. But let's go back to your story before doodle, before dancing, before coaching and consulting, all this other stuff. Who are you and where are you from? <laughs> so, um. I was born um, a few years ago. Um, we were, you know, we won't go there. Um, I'm definitely, I'm certainly an early 80s baby. Uh-huh. Um, and I was born in a small town in the north of England called Huddersfield. Um, and then I moved to the city, to London, with my family when I was seven years old. And the small town I came from, which was quite a rural place um, and a very sort of quiet and comfortable place to grow up in meant that there was a huge culture shift when I finally got into East London, into the city, mm-hmm. into the hood, essentially. Um, and I, I basically, from that point onwards, had to learn how to, again, go for what I want, protect my interests and, you know, make sure I stayed on the right path because there were plenty of opportunities for me not to. Mm-hmm. Um and so moving to move to London at seven, also moved to London with a strange accent, because, of course, just like you have in the US, we, we also have regional accents here in the UK, too. Oh, wow. Um, so my accent's quite neutral now. As I've got older, it's sort of flattened out a bit. But when I was younger, I had quite a strong northern accent, which is very different to the London accent. Um, so that it meant that I was definitely a target in school for bullies um, and, you know, sort of generally just the the kid that I was, I was always sort of much bigger and wider than the other kids. For my age, I was a big kid. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And so, you know, I was very much sort of targeted and and, and bullied quite a bit throughout school. Um, And it was difficult because at that time I didn't necessarily have a way um, to 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 control it. As mm-hmm. such, it wasn't something that I went back to my parents. My, I come from, you know, my parents are, my mother's um, German. My dad is from Grenada in the Caribbean. Oh, wow. And um, yeah, I, you know, their kind of stance on it was. In Europe, don't wow. Come home. Yeah. <laughs> their, their stance was don't come home and tell us you're being bullied. Sort it out. Do something about it. Um, which is, you know, easier said than done. Yeah. <laughs> you know, kid, you know, but my parents were not having it, you know, like that just, that was just the way that they were. Um, so it took a long time. I'll be honest. It took a long time for me to kind of find myself, um, and find that kind of self-esteem and that confidence to be able to do something about it. And it was through actually finding dance that I did that I was able to do that mm-hmm. um and so I guess that's the next stage of my story was was being able to find dance but ultimately as a child yeah it was centered around this big move into a big city and realizing that wow life is not easy yeah yeah man so question around that before we kind of transition because I think the arc of this podcast will be um, after this question, try to transition to dancing and how you got into that and then your, your your background in that. Then we'll talk a little bit about a lot of bit about doodle and the startup of that and how that transitioned from dancing to creating an animated <laughs> like digital company. Uh, then, uh, then, of course, I definitely would have touched on briefly uh, your coaching and consulting and, and kind of doing that. Um, and then we'll, we'll talk about the future. Then we'll close it out. But question for that, for our American listeners that are that are that are tuning in right now, we have listeners across the country, of course, but primarily it's in the U in the States. Is it, is the experience being a uh, person of color in the UK? Is it is, is it a little different or how how is it growing up being a person of color? Was that was was color an issue or um was color an issue? This is the thing. I never saw my color as an issue. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, I don't know if anybody else did either, because I, I always remain quite ignorant towards it. Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't allow my color to be an issue. I've never allowed my color to be an issue. Um, and even as a child, I was very aware. Um, I was quite self-aware because my parents were were great at being able to instill both the, Carib- the Caribbean culture and, mm-hmm. and the, the European heritage and European culture in me. So me, I have a brother and a sister as well. We all grew up knowing, you know, knowing who we were and where we were from, mm-hmm. which was, you know, which was great. Now, interestingly, here in the UK, being mixed race, you don't necessarily identify yourself as black, which I know that you do in the US. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I was to move to the US, I'd be considered a black woman. Mm-hmm. Um, here in the UK, it's slightly more relaxed. It, it's a little bit more sort of loose. But being of color and of any race or any background, of course, no matter, I think, where you live, there are issues to be had with it. Mm-hmm. It's just that I never allowed myself to see them or to, to to react to them or to be a part of them or allow them to be a part of me. So I can't really, I know that that's not necessarily an answer to your question, but it's not one that I can necessarily answer because I just haven't had the experience with it. 
Nah, that's 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 all I needed because I mean I always try to ask that because it's crazy that the podcast that we just released yesterday was um, a teacher and a person that has an f- amazing uh, for-profit company that helps educate uh, young children on their their blackness in the states because you know and in the U.S. it's a, it's a, it's, a, it's very different because we, yeah. <laughs> we were here on a very different di- very different way so I always try to get perspectives from those outside but the crossover to start with. Um, dancing, because I know you had a, a a background in that, and you still operate in that space. So, coming from middle around fifteen years old, what kind of led you down that road, and how did you kind of stay in that role? Because I know I've had uh, one dancer that is professional dancer in the United States on this podcast. And you know, the dancer industry is very different, very unique, and very difficult to a get in, and then two stay in. So, share us about that experience doing that. Yeah, so um, I actually started dancing when I was 11. Okay. And I began, um, I have to say that, you know, when I started as a, as a dancer, I always say this, I had three left feet. I was <laughs> so bad, really bad. But I began um, with a local youth and community center. So I didn't go to a prestigious dance school or anything like that. It was just a local youth center. And they offered these dance classes once a week of these dance sessions for children. Um, And so I begged my parents to go and they finally relented and said yes. And this this class was, you know, it cost 15 pence. You know, what would be the equivalent of probably about 20 cents to take a class at that time. It was, you know, it was subsidized by the government. It was cheap. It was this program. They thought it would give the kids something to do. Right, fine. So I went along. And I was terrible. I was absolutely awful. And I was probably awful for about three years as well. But what kept me at it was just the the friendships that I built there um, and just the family that I gained from being within that space. You know, I loved turning up, trying to do the choreography, getting it completely wrong, but having a great time with people there because it was a complete escape from what was going on at my school where, you know, nobody liked me and, you know, mm-hmm. it was you know, having a lot of trouble there. But within these dance classes, I had so many friends and they were all so supportive of me. And as I said, I was the biggest kid there. I was the widest kid there, but nobody cared that everybody just sort of got on with it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until I was probably about 15 that I thought to myself, you know what would be amazing would be if I could wake up every morning and do this. This is what I want to do. This would just be incredible. Now, of course, my parents were not of the same mindset. And actually, they raised me to be quite academic. So I'd already had my heart set on a career. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was going to do forensic pathology before oh, wow. it became before it became fashionable. <laughs> uh, you know, before the days of CSI. And yeah. So I was going to do forensic pathology and I'd already sort of determined the, the school I was going to go to and, you know, the, my, my majors and everything that I needed to do. It, it was set. But I woke up every morning thinking, I just want to dance. I love to dance. And to be honest, when I chose the school that I wanted to go to to study the sciences that I need. So I studied biology, chemistry and mathematics. When I chose the school I went to, I actually chose it because they had an incredible dance studio. Mm. Not because (laughs) they were necessarily (laughs) incredible in terms of teaching biology, chemistry and mathematics. Uh And I found myself going to this 
um, to this this school. And at the time, um, over here in the UK, between the ages of 16 and 18, we have um, what's called college. Now, I know that your college in the US is when you're sort of 18 plus and you you, you go on from there. For us, it, it comes slightly earlier in our educational journey. Mm-hmm. So I went to this college and, you know, I was finding myself turning up for some lectures and not for others because I was in the dance studio playing around and I found myself um, being recognized in the college for the dance stuff that I'd done before and people would say hey can you just can you teach me this move can you teach me that move so I'd be like yeah sure you know, <laughs> I'm getting really popular in this college because I can teach the moves uh-huh. um, so from there I finished college pretty much hating the the academic side of what I did but Mm -hmm. continuing for my parents Um, and I went on to university to do my degree in biomedical science oh wow and I got two years into this degree and one morning I woke up and I said you know what I can't do this anymore I cannot do this anymore I just I want to try the dance thing let me give it a shot. If it all falls apart, I'll go back to university. I'll continue on the course and I'll do it. But if I'm gonna, do, if I'm gonna do it, I've got to do it now. Mm-hmm. And I was nineteen at that point. Um, so I just <laughs> I quit university and wow. I called my parents, and they near damn well had heart attacks. Um, <laughs> oh, so you quit before you called? Yeah. Oh man, you didn't even get a confirmation. <laughs> if, I, hey. if I do something, I'm gonna do it. You know. <laughs> um. Yeah, they were not impressed. Um, in fact, they were devastated, to be honest, because, of course, they also knew how difficult the industry was going mm. to be for me and, and a challenge it was going to be. And the odds on you making it in entertainment, let alone dance, you know, is is slim to none these days. And, and back then it was the same. <clears throat> so essentially, I, you know, I dropped everything and decided I'm going to go and I'm going to dance and I'm going to attempt it professionally and I'm going to see what happens. And um at that point, unfortunately, it went the way everybody said it would. Mm. Um, I'd say for the first sort of three years following that, I went to audition after audition. And essentially, because I was, um, I hadn't been trained in a prestigious dance school, I only had this community background um, that went against me. The fact that I was a hip hop dancer so I didn't do any other of the classical or contemporary dance styles, no mm-hmm. ballet, no jazz, etc. <clears throat> that went against me. The fact that I was a female hip hop dancer. Oh wow! Because especially over here in the UK, it was very, it was you know, it was it was very male oriented. If you were going to do hip hop, only guys did hip hop. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, and then. Uh, well, actually, if women did hip hop, you could do hip hop, but it would mean wearing a bikini and shaking your booty on a car. Oh, man. And that was as far as it went, really. <laughs> um, and then finally, because I was considered plus size for the industry. Mm. And I was a plus size dancer. And I've been recognized as probably the UK's first plus size professional dancer. Oh, wow. Which is a, a great achievement. Yeah, yeah. Golly. That's... <laughs> <laughs> Um, but all of these things went against me. It got to the point where I was going to auditions and they wouldn't even see me, let alone watch what I had to do to make a decision. Like I'd rock up at the door and they'd be like, Nope, (laughs) we don't want to see you dance. You know, we're not even interested. And that happened a lot. Mm -hmm. So much, you know, hundreds of auditions, you know, came and went. Um, and to be honest, there was a point where I was feeling really quite deflated. Um, and I got a few sort of small gigs 
I gate crashed a music video. My first ever professional gig was on a, a music video for a band over here called Mystique. Mm-hmm. Um, and I literally got that gig by finding out from some of my friends who had been booked on the gig when it was, and then sort of turning up and being like, yeah, you cast me. Yeah, I'm supposed to be on the list. <laughs> and they went with it. <laughs> oh, man. So that no was not an option. Listen, no is not an option, but I'm not necessarily su- suggesting that that's a strategy <laughs> for any dancers who are out there listening. Sure, I'm about to show up and do the direct, be like, yo, I, I am I am the CFO now. Like, no, I, yes, you hired me. I sent the direct deposit. Like, yo, what's up? Kim, why you fronting? Yo, what you mean? Exactly that. Exactly. Uh-huh. Oh, man. Um, but it was a great experience. I did a music video and, you know, at that point it gave me a bit of a lift. But again, going back to auditions, it was all just, you know, it was a complete nightmare. Um, and then it was a sort of a few months later when I got an email from a friend of mine who I was really close to. She used to come to all my auditions as well. We used to audition together. She often got got, got given jobs and I didn't mm-hmm. um, because she looked like a dancer. You know, she had she had the look, she had the training, etc. And she said, there's this major sports company looking for dancers for their next commercial and there's an open audition we should go I wrote back to her and just in capital letters said no oh man (laughs) that one I'm not going to I do not want to be embarrassed in front of a major sports brand that's fine you know you and she said well what else are you doing on the day that it's happening. And I was like, well, nothing. And she said, well, you know what? I want to go. Will you come along with me? I'm going to need someone to wait with me. So I was like, you know what? Fine. I'll come along with you. When we went down to the audition, unlike most auditions, um, there were over 700 people there. Audition. So the queue was huge. The line was massive. And so we were told that there would be sort of a six to a six and a half hour wait to be seen. Mm -hmm. Um, of course, I was ready to to go home or go shopping, one of the two. And my friend was like, no, 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 no please, we've got to wait. We're here now. We're going to wait. We're going to wait. All right, fine. So we waited and we got to the front of the queue and the casting director, he gave us both the forms to fill in. And I said, I'm not doing this audition. And he said to me, why not? And I oh, said, wow. you know what? It's fine. I just, you know, I'm not going to do it. And he said, well, you've, you've been in that line for six and a half hours. You may as well do something with yourself today. Wow, that's a that's a unique cast right here. Because he, he could yeah. just be like, all right, cool. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So I said, okay, well, fair, fine, fair enough. So we got actually inside the building now, and there's this huge buzz going around the room that this cast that, that the choreographer is looking for booty shakers. <laughs> He's looking for booty shakers, and I was just like, oh my gosh. Because all of my dance training, anything that I'd ever done in hip hop, it was the breaking, it was the popping, um, it was the locking, the boogaloo style, you know, it wasn't anything to do with being, you know, sexual in any way. I didn't know I wouldn't know how to be sexual even if I tried. Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, this is gonna be a mess, but hey, I'm gonna walk in there anyway. So just as the, the buzz was going around the room, got into this room in front of the camera and the uh, choreographer there, um, who wasn't the main choreographer at the time, he said, look, what we'd like to see is your best sort of booty shake. So give us your name. Tell us where you're from and do your booty shake. Oh, so wow. I got in front of the camera and I said, hey, my name's Kim. I'm from East London, but I'm not going to booty shake because that's not what I do. But this is what I do. So I did this little popping set and I sort of showed them a little bit of what I did. And I walked out of there laughing because I was like, there is no way that's going to go anywhere. But I got a call that evening saying, congratulations, you're through to the next round. Oh, wow. 
Now that hadn't happened to me for years. <laughs> wow. So I like, okay, this must be some kind of joke, but fine. So the next round was the next day in another studio and they'd taken that cut from nearly 700 girls um, down to 50. Oh, no, even 30. It was a top 30 from there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there had been an immediate huge cut. And when I got in that studio, there were some incredible dancers, like beautiful ballerinas and jazz dancers, all very sort of long and lean and gorgeous. And then there was me with my... Um, my, my my cap turned backwards wearing my hair. <laughs> so the casting director at the time at, at this point you were hooked to, up to like a live link up to the choreographer who was in LA at the time mm-hmm. so he could see what was happening but we couldn't interact with the choreographer and we couldn't see him either um, and the casting director says right great congratulations you're all here now this is fantastic what I'd like to see is all of your dance training all of your jazz all of your tap um, lyrical contemporary ballet Anything ethnic that you do, so Bollywood or any African dance styles, and then anything else you can do. So, of course, at that point, I exhaled and said, right, okay, I shouldn't be here (laughs) because I've never done any of those dance styles. Uh I I, I took the casting director to one side and said, look, I don't want to waste your time. I'm going to leave because that's not what I do. And he said to me, just make it up. Mm. I was like, what? He said, just make it up just go out there and make it up so i thought well this could be fun (laughs) (laughs) went out there and i made it up i pranced around that studio pretending to be a ballet dancer pretending to be a jazz dancer like a baby elephant i was bouncing around having a great time and then towards the end of the set i was able to do what i did which was the hip-hop dance styles Uh i came away from there you know laughing to myself because i thought that was you know it felt great but wow what a mess hot mess um then i got a phone call that evening saying um congratulations you're through to the final round oh wow at this point i was like okay this is definitely a joke like someone (laughs) this is really fun set me up um it's crazy but this is totally a setup so i said to them okay yeah fine no worries yeah i'll turn up again tomorrow no problem but honestly, I woke up that next morning thinking, this is this can't be for real. So I took my time and I sort of got dressed really slowly and left the house and then kind of stopped off. I was window shopping on my way to the studio and I got a call from the casting director going, where are you? You're late. What's happening? What's going on? And I was like, oh, this is for real. OK. And you well, showed I'm up late on the last day? <laughs> I showed up late on the last day. And when I got in there, they'd taken it down from that 30 girls down to 10. But the 10 were European wide. So they'd done similar castings in all of the major cities in Europe. Oh. And the top 10 were brought together to do a final audition. So I um, looked in, you know, in, inside the studio. Everybody was doing their audition solo. And... There were dancers there who were just, again, I thought they were incredible before. These dancers were world-class dancers. They were just stunning. And now the choreographer was there from L.A., along with his assistants. And, of course, the casting director and his assistants. Um, and the client, who I then found out was Nike. Mm. And the advertising agency. And the director of the commercial. And of course, I then also recognized the choreographer when I saw him as well, um, being a man named Jamie King, um, who is known for being probably the most incredible um, live concert and video choreographer there is. He's done everyone from Madonna, Janet Jackson, Prince, you name it, this guy's nailed it. You know, he's just absolutely 
incredible. And as a child, I can remember watching Janet Jackson. I can remember watching Madonna and, you know, thinking, wow, imagine what it would be like to be able to dance on stages like those guys and perform like they can, you know. Mm-hmm. And so eventually when it was my turn to be called into the studio, I walked in in front of this huge panel. It was like something from Flashdance. And they all sat there staring at me. And I thought, oh, here we go. So the choreographer's assistant comes up to me and she says, right, okay, this is the concept. There's a big speaker in the corner and you're going to battle against this speaker. And the speaker's going to go, then you're going to go. And then the speaker's going to go, and then you're going to go. And then you're going to be crowned the winner. And that's the end of the commercial. Have you got it? You got it? Great. Okay, here we go. Press play. So I was like, okay. (laughs) To press play. And the choreographer, Jamie King, he put his hand up. He was like, no, wait a minute. And I was like, oh, busted. Busted, busted, busted. Uh Okay comes from around the desk and he walks to the middle of the studio where I'm standing. And I thought, okay, well, this has been good. So I'm expecting him to say, sorry, we've made a mistake. Uh (laughs) It's time to go. Um, And he whispered in my ear, my name's Jamie King. And I've been watching you since the beginning. I'm really excited that you're here and I can't wait to see you perform for us today. Oh, wow. And then he went. And at that point, my entire world exploded. It absolutely exploded because for years, all I wanted was that recognition that I was a real dancer, even though I couldn't afford to go to dance school, even though I hadn't trained the way the others had, even though I wasn't built the way a dancer should have been built, uh, you know, according to industry standards. I just wanted the recognition. And I was so tired of being told you'll never make it. But for this man with his background and his experience to say he's looking forward to watching me perform. Listen, I forgot that I was even in an audition. I forgot who the client was. I forgot what was going on. I literally was on a higher level in another world. They pressed play on that system and I went nuts. I I bet. (laughs) My heart out just for the love of it, just for everything that it was, because I thought, you know what? This is everything I've worked for this moment right here. So I danced. I said, thank you very much. I walked out of that studio. I picked up my bag. I walked you know, away and just thought that was the best experience of my life. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm pleased that I've done it. And it's just been, it's been great. And it won't go any further. But for that man to recognize me, that is wonderful. And then a few weeks later, I got a phone call from my dad because at that point, I'd actually ended up moving back in with my parents, um, as you do when you're a broke dancer, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, and I got a message from my dad and he was like, oh, I don't know, you've got a fitting on Friday. And I was like, that, what does that even mean? He's like, fitting on Friday for the Nike commercial? Wow. I was like, a what? He's like, I don't know, you've been booked for a Nike commercial. <laughs> and I was like, what? And I went through that entire process of filming that commercial, mm-hmm. believing that they had made a mistake. I was so sure I was going to get cut still. They kitted me, they fitted me and kitted me out. I had private rehearsals with Jamie King and his assistant. You know, I went through, we did all of the rehearsals. We did all of the filming. We did all of the digital stuff after the filming. They did interviews with me, except but I was just convinced this isn't actually going to get seen, is it? You know, millions of pounds they spend on these commercials, but this isn't actually going to get seen, mm. you know? Um, and after that, you know, we shot in the September and, of course, it takes a while for the editing and for them to put the campaign together. And you know, I didn't hear anything from them. So fine, you know, and I expected that and I expected it not to go live and it was OK. Um, the dance thing all went downhill again. 
Um, shortly after that, I actually ended up entering a reality TV show over here because I've been told, uh, I've been told by the producers that I'd be really good for reality TV. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to try. And I, I ended up being the laughing stock during the audition stages on this reality TV show because the judges tore me apart uh-huh. and saying, you don't stand a chance. You'll never make it. This isn't, you know, give up, quit whilst you're not even ahead kind of thing. So I came away from that completely, you know, finished and decided I was going to stop the dance thing. I needed to go back to university. I needed to, you know, to come back to reality. I'm going to go back to uni. In the meantime, until I start university again, I'll get a proper job. Mm -hmm. So I'm doing administration in an office. And I was feeling this was right through until February. um, And I was feeling, you know, quite deflated one Friday evening. And I'm sat at home on, on my bed, messing around on my laptop. And I could hear the TV was on in the background. And I could hear a piece of music. And I'm like, that music sounds familiar. I know that piece of music. And I looked up. And at 9 p.m. on one of the major television channels was my commercial wow. for Nike. And my phone started blowing up. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm going <laughs> to see you. This is incredible. Oh, my God. You know, everything just went absolutely crazy. The next morning, I called my job and basically said, I'm sorry, guys, I'm, I can't, I quit. I'm not coming in. I'm not, I'm, I'm going to dance. I'm going to do this. I am going to make this work. Oh, and I'm doing this. Um, and from that point, essentially, I haven't looked back. Wow. <laughs> that, man, I just got to. Um, I feel like I just watched a movie and I'm like, yo, this is, this is, this, this is a movie. This doesn't make, it, it makes sense, but it's just so it down to right? every detail. Like this is, this is, it, man, I, I can't wait till I, I'm not, this, this is going to sound really weird. I, I was about to say, I can't wait to the end of your life so I can see the movie and stuff like that. But I was, I'm not going to, I'm going to say that comment right now. But, uh, yo, that is, that's freaking, there's, there's so much stuff I can get from that, but I'm just going to leave that right there. Cause that story is enough. I mean, three years in the game. You working, you working, you working. You are at an audition, six and a half hours, 700 people there. And that's just for one site because there's multiple sites. So, I mean, thousands of people competing for one. First of all, your friend was being a good friend and, and asked you to come because that's usually dancers like more competition. No, there's only yeah. one role. <laughs> exactly. And then you just kept going and going, showed up late to the final audition, <laughs> had one of the most legendary people in in in, in your in your industry, period, and randomly come up to you and say, yo, I'm excited about your audition. You're like, what the heck? I was a person with three left feet in like six or seven years ago. And then you, 9 p.m. on national television, and you see yourself dancing at a night. You just can't make that stuff up. (laughs) So what's so crazy is, because I know after that, and I I know we don't have the time to really dig, because I know you've done some phenomenal work, work with some legends in the dancing space, but I, this is a great setup to how in the world did you end up in the digital animation space? <laughs> like, where, where, did this, where did that come from? Like dancing, doing all this other stuff. You don't dance in front of computers. You're not dancing in a lab. You're dancing. And that's hard. That's, that's a lot of different stuff. So where in the world did Doodle Direct? So can you just jump into how Doodle Direct was founded and how was that jarring transition occur? Absolutely. So Doodle Direct. Um, so we create animated video for business communications. And it began after I had my son. My son's now seven years old. Um, And I'd had a phenomenal career in entertainment. I loved it, but it meant me doing lots of traveling and it was a completely up and down schedule. There was no consistency about it. And I thought, you know what? I just want to be a mum. 
I just want to be a mom to my son. So I decided to quit in entertainment as a performer and as a choreographer um, and just stay home and, and raise my son. Um, the problem with that was I'm not a stay at home raising children kind of person, mm -hmm. I learned. Um, and actually, it all backfired on me because I ended up with quite bad postnatal depression and I, you know, ended up having counseling and, you know, therapy and mm -hmm. it kind of boiled back to the fact that I'm really, I'm very much a go-getter and I need to have something to focus on, something to work on, something to focus on to keep me going. And that can't just be crying babies and nappies. It's got to be more. Mm -hmm. So thinking about that, I was open to the idea of potentially, you know, starting doing something new. And I always loved video editing um, off of the back of my choreography, music editing and video editing. I knew the basics. I had basic video editing software and I knew the basics of animation as well. Wow. Um, but I didn't ever do anything with it. I mm. just enjoyed, you know, playing with it because it was fun. Um, and you could do stuff, you know, with live footage that you'd taken of dancers and you could you could make it into something else. And so it wasn't until um, another friend of mine um, came to me and she said, hey, you know, those animated videos that businesses have to advertise what they do. I'd really like one. And I've been to an agency and they have quoted me seven thousand pounds. So that's like ten thousand um, dollars to have one made for one minute. And I was like, ten thousand dollars for a minute. She's like, I don't have that money, but I really want one. Do you know someone who can help? So I said, listen, I'll make you something really basic, when you have $10,000, go back and get it done properly. And she said, great, yeah. So I just made her this video and mm. it was really simple to advertise her startup business. So she put it up on her website and a few people asked, where did you get that video done? So she referred them to me and I made a few more videos. Now, considering I was doing this from home, I had the baby beside me in a bouncer, you know, or toddling around at that time, he wasn't his little walker. Um, I was charging next to nothing for making it because it was something for me to do. And off of the back of that, I was being, you know, they, these people that I made the second generation of videos for referred me to other people and it snowballed. I ended up, you know, having sort of five, between five and 10 video requests a week. Mm. And I realized at that point, I should probably find people who know what they're doing to be able to fulfill these orders because this is crazy. Um, and so that's what I did in the first instance. I found um, a, an incredible animator, a copywriter and a voiceover artist um, all of which I'd been doing myself prior to that. You were doing um, your, you were doing the animation and the voiceover yeah, too. Yeah, and the copywriting, <laughs> like you know everything. It was just because it was just the simple stuff, or so I thought. It was just the basics. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and the the word of mouth and the referral just continued, um, and essentially a business was born. I didn't even realize it at the time, um, and I had no intention of starting a business in a digital space, less of all animation. Um, or business communications even. But it just kept snowballing. And as it snowballed, I've increased the size of the team. Um, and to be honest with you, making that transition from being in entertainment to now doing something in terms of communications has been exceptionally difficult in ways, but really easy in others. Because I found parallels between me being a choreographer and me being able to, to help businesses to communicate a little bit better. Because essentially my job as a choreographer was to help people to move to communicate a message visually. Mm -hmm. So they mm. move around on stage or on a film set or whatever it was. My job now is to make graphics move in such a way that they can communicate a message effectively and visually. So instead of working with people, I now work with shapes. 
it's actually really similar. <laughs> it's mm. actually it's a, there's a lot of parallels in it. But in terms of working, you know, with corporates, of course, you know, I worked with Nike. I worked with Nike for a long time. I, ended, I did that first commercial for them. It snowballed into a second commercial and then I signed to them. Wow. So that was, I was the first athlete to sign to Nike in the UK as a dancer. <laughs> That's crazy. It <laughs> <laughs> actually gave me a contract um, where they paid me money and completely kitted me out you know like to be honest with you i've still got the best part of about 45 pairs of sneakers in my closet that what? I That's fresh because i can't i couldn't wear them fast enough and i still can't <laughs> um, you know but it was an awesome experience working with nike not just for that because it's great to be you know in your early 20s and have that kind of opportunity open up for you but also to understand the way a corporate company works and to understand how, you know, how the machine and the operations all come together. And I used to sit in their, their sales and marketing conferences, even though I didn't necessarily need to, because it fascinated me. I was, you know, I was interested in how a business like this, how it operated, how it grows, you know, to understand its market, etc. And I'd just sit there and I'd listen. And at the time, I didn't quite realize how much of a step up, a hand up I was giving myself. Because then being able to switch over into Doodle Direct and talk to corporate companies and say to them, guys, I actually, I understand your challenges and I understand how we can make sure we can overcome these with a solid communication. It's meant that we can talk to some really good companies and we've ended up with having some great clients who stuck with us as well. Um, some of the, you know, some of the biggest names in the world we've worked with, um, and they, you know, they've ended up becoming retained clients for us for a tiny, tiny, tiny little outfit, which technically we still are mm -hmm. to have you know, the, these huge names on our roster. It, it, it feels great, but I believe that's because of my experience in a company like Nike and just understanding the way a corporate company works versus, you know, a smaller business, a startup and, and that sort of idea, because they are two very different ways of working. Um, and it was great just to understand that. That's very, that's very, very unique. And for, for our audience out here that do have maybe smaller outfits that don't necessarily have corporate clientele just yet or aiming on to that in the future, it, for, for the next that you can share on from on a, uh, on in this on this platform what are the top nuggets that you took away from working with nike that you can share with those that um in the future would like to hopefully a stole to that type of um place because i know a lot of people they, they didn't have that experience and now they're kind of playing in the the regular market which is cool but you know the next level up is working not necessarily with some of the top corporations in the world but even local businesses around them or or just taking it to another level the clientele and you know that requires a different a running things a different set of ways so if you can kind of get share some some high level pointers with them uh what would you say um I think first and foremost, understanding when working with larger companies and corporate companies, you understand that there are a lot of people involved in the process of, of buying and negotiating your product or your service. So firstly, that buying process is much longer than it would be with a, a smaller outfit if you were selling to a smaller outfit. Mm -hmm. Now, within that buying process, your job as the provider of said product or service is to solve a problem within their business now no matter what it is that you've got if you're in business you're there somewhere at some point to solve a problem 
and understanding that when you're communicating with corporate companies, you're communicating with human beings that have problems to solve. That whether or not they turn over, you know, $50 billion a year is irrelevant. They're human beings who have problems that need solving and you can solve them. So therefore, you shouldn't feel in any way intimidated or hold yourself back or there shouldn't be any blocks there to you stepping forward and saying, hey, I can solve your problem. Let's do this. And I think that's the biggest thing that I learned in terms of being able to approach corporate companies and being able to set up contracts and agreements with them is that size doesn't matter. If you can solve that problem, they'll hire you to solve the problem. You just have to talk to them on a human level and let them know this is how we solve it through my product or service, through what I can provide. Let's get this done, because that's essentially what everybody in a, in a large corporate machine wants. They just want to get the job done and they want to look good for their superior. They want to be the employee that recognize that this was a great decision. So let's just, you know, let's just make this happen. And so you should always, always feel confident about what it is that you've got to provide. And it's your duty to provide it, because if you can solve their problem, it's your duty to step up and do so. Now, the, the, another main thing about corporate companies and that kind of slow process, that slow way of working, because there are so many people involved in the chain, mm -hmm. it does mean that payment is slow working and a slow process. <laughs> so you, man, you need, to just, you need to make sure that, you know, you are ready for that, you know, that three month invoice turnaround, because wow, can they take some time to pay an invoice? And mm -hmm. that often is what can make or break a company is the, the just the difficulties with cash flows when a huge corporate machine just doesn't pay your invoice mm -hmm. because you're just lost amongst a stack of other invoices. Um, so I've learned to get really quite pally pally and friendly with the accounts departments in most of the places that I work with. Then I'll call <laughs> them up, you know, and I'm like, hey, what's, what's happening, Justin? Listen, you remember that invoice? Yeah, that one. Great. Can you just pull it up? Wonderful. Can you let me know exactly when that's going to clear in my account? And often you'll find that it clears a lot faster. Uh -huh. then you would it would have done had you not have had any contacts but again it's about human to human contacts building relationships letting people know that you exist it's you're not just you know an email uh, you know you're more than just an email or that voice behind an email you're a person pick up the phone and talk to people because that is how the best business is done and again regardless of the size of the companies that you're working with you build those relationships and you are going to be successful in whatever it is that you're going to do Mm, man woof oh man 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 so uh i got i got a couple things on that before we go to the to our to our next round one initially uh this i guess and i and I, i'm gonna introduce you to that. i usually ask two questions in one this is not proper interview etiquette but i've been doing it for so long that it just that's just how i roll i ask a lot <laughs> i just ask questions in a question so I, i've been reading a lot of your 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 posts uh, online, I actually been learning a lot just just about business and the way the way you operate. And I'm just like, yo, this is some you 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 giving me a lot of stuff. Um, and one thing you said was majority of your business is is through referrals and past clients, right? Yeah. So, uh, what is the best way? What is what are some of the top ways you've been able to really uh, cultivate and grow those relationships after you rendered a service? And I know some of the stuff may be simple, but a lot of the simple stuff you see most entrepreneurs and most people, even outside of business, don't do. So I always continue to ask people that. And then the second question of that is on the other maybe twenty percent, which is new business. 
do you send your like a cold email or usually cold call? Because you said about relationships and having the human connection. How do you go about getting new business? Right. Okay. That is a question within a question within a question, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> That's that inception question. Yeah. Um, right. <laughs> hey, that's how that's how the podcast always is like an hour or something like that. Because it's like, yeah. it's a, and it gives my my great talkers like yourself a big smorgasbord to just do your thing. <laughs> yeah. All right. So in terms of retaining clients and keeping relationships, I think ultimately it's about, you know, the fundamentals of relationship building, whether it's business or otherwise. So it's about understanding your clients first and foremost and showing that you understand their needs and making sure that you have regular conversations about that in order to show your clients that you are the person that they need to talk to to solve whatever problem it is that they might have. And by constantly sort of keeping in contact. And when I say keeping in contact, you know, it is it's literally, hey, what's going on? How are you? How was your week? What's you know, what's happening now? A lot of these people are busy. They're super busy. They've got, you know, really pressurized jobs but you'd be surprised how many of them respond to wow okay well you know you actually see me as a human being I'm not just another number in this corporate machine you're asking me how my weekend was well it was great you know I went sailing or I did this or I did that and you 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 genuinely take an interest in them you should genuinely take an interest in your clients um because it's not just somebody that you know in in terms of business you shouldn't be thinking about your clients short term and thinking, hey, let's get this job done, move on, find new clients. No, the idea is to retain and nurture the clients that you have. That cost of acquisition is uh, cost of acquisition is zero if you can keep working with the same client. And not only that, you'll get stronger because you'll get to know them more and you'll find that you solve their problems even more easily um, and even more effectively because you know them. So growing a relationship in the same way you grow a friendship or a romantic relationship outside of business Um, It's exactly that, again, on a human to human level and also being consistent about it as well. Um, So making sure that you're just consistently there so that they know that they can depend on you. Um, If they need something, they know that you are there. It's not sporadic. You will be there when they call. Um, And also being honest and transparent. So actually, we've had, you know, one of our major clients or probably our biggest client, um, we've had times where you know, all hell's broken loose at our end. You know, we are not going to meet that delivery date. You know, it's all gone wrong. You know, someone's hard drive has exploded. It's a whole thing. Being transparent about it, being honest with them and just saying, hey, on a human level, listen, yo, it is mental here. Um, This is what's gone wrong. This is what we're doing to fix it. And we will fix it. But this is what it means in terms of us being able to deliver to you you know, here it is, we're laying it out on the line. Every, you know, our biggest client and all of our other clients, any other time that's happened, have responded really positively to it. You know, it wasn't just, we didn't just go on the missing list and we didn't just, you know, say, hey, yeah, it's going to be with you and just give us, yeah, five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes. No, we were very open and honest about what's going on. We let them into our space and said, hey, look, this is how it works from our end. And this is where at the moment we're having trouble. Every single one of our clients has been, you know, completely open and you know really responded well and said look guys no worries take the time you need Mm. let's just as you would with a friend or as you would with a family member as you would in another relationship you'd say hey okay I get it no worries I'll I'll sort things out on my end you get sorted at your end 
and we'll, we'll regroup. That is, you know, a saving grace for us. And because of that, because they know that we're transparent, we'll always tell them if something's going to go wrong. Again, it's been it's been amazing in keeping them, you know, on our roster or having them stay on our roster. Man. Um, and then the second part of your question, which was about retainers versus new business. So mm-hmm. I've only we've only started our business development activity at the beginning of this year. Oh, that's wow. when we. I, that's when I thought, you know what? Let's kick this up a notch and let's do that. So I actually hired a business development manager um, full time to to focus on it. And actually, our business development process is calls, cold calling, picking up the phone. Um, and here's why: because I know a lot of people say, "Oh my goodness, are you crazy? Nobody wants to receive a phone call." Well, actually, you're right. Nobody does particularly want to receive a phone call. If you are selling them something that they don't want or they don't need. Um, So in the first instance, you need to make sure that that person you are calling needs what you have to offer them. That you are confident and you can competently explain to them why that is. Secondly, if they do need your services, then you have an obligation to give them your services. So therefore, you pick up the phone and you say, hey. I know that, you know, you're having trouble with X, Y, and Z. I can help by giving you A, B, and C. How do we make this happen? And that's what it's about. The call isn't, hi, my name is Kimberly. I'm calling from Doodle Direct and we do the video and we would like to, you know, it's not, that's not the conversation. (laughs) The conversation is, hey, Mr. CEO, listen, I love what you do in your company. It's brilliant. I'm a small company. We're based in the back end of London, but Listen, I know that at the moment your company is struggling with this and we've got a great solution for you. I'd love to work with you. How do we make this happen? Boom. And they answer. Mm -hmm. And they tell you. They'll say, well, you know, either they'll say to you, well, actually, um, that's not a problem, you know, necessarily for us. Um, In which case that's fine, you know, because then they're not a customer for you. And you can say, well, great. I'm glad you're not having trouble with that. But if you ever are, let us know. Um, But if they say, yes, this is something we need some help with, often if you call in at the top of the tree, so the aim is for you to find the CEO first and work your way down, what they'll do is they'll refer you and they'll say, brilliant. Yeah, that sounds like something we need. You're going to need to talk to Janet in HR. So you say, thank you very much. Can you can you give me the number or put me through to Janet in HR? And of course they say, well, no, but that doesn't matter. Because you say, well, thanks for your help. I'm excited to be able to to get something kicked off with you. I'll find Janet. You then go through the exact same way you found the CEO's number, usually through the switchboard of the company. And you call up that switchboard and you say, can you put me through to Janet in HR? And Janet in HR picks up the phone and she says, "Mm, who are you and why should I care? And you say, well, your CEO has just asked for me to give you a call. Um, And it's regarding this. And we're aware that this could be an issue for you guys. And we'd love to talk about how we solve that problem. How do we get together to make it happen? And a referral from a CEO in a company means people take action. Mm. So you'll be surprised how <laughs> that works. And so essentially, the call is important. That Again, that human contact is important. An email can be read in so many different ways. An email often isn't read at all. But a call, it's taken. Now, again, your, your, your uh, conversion rate on calls, you know, you're probably looking at having to make 
100 calls. But out of 100 calls, if you can get two meetings out of that and you can nail one of them, if for every calls you know that you are getting an order or somebody is buying your product or service again depending on your price point who you're selling to where it all sits in the market then you can start to quantify your activity so you know i've got to make 100 calls 100 calls takes me three days to do every three days i'm going to get a meet two meetings and of every two meetings i'm going to make a sale if i want to make 10 sales then i know i've got to make so many calls over so many days and then you can start to actually plan your business because you've already put those into a system, you're using, you know, a CRM system to be able to to analyze all of your outbound business development and you can start to quantify it. And once you've quantified it, then, you know, as a business owner, you can either hire people to do that part, which is exactly what I've done um, and know that they'll kind of keep it ticking over. And you'll also know what your return on your investment in hiring that person will be as well. But the important thing is, you need to do it first. You absolutely need to try it first. And if you're scared to sell in your business, then it's possible business isn't right for you. Mm. Because you need to get over the fear of selling. That's something that I've, you know, I've learned, you know, over a few years, but more importantly, over this past year or so, you've got to, you've got to jump that barrier. And there should be no reason why you're scared to sell what you have, so long as you honestly believe in what it is that you're selling. Now, if you're selling something that you're like, people are buying this and it's a complete con, then fair enough. You know, then you're not confident in it. And I understand why you're scared to sell it. But if you've got the ability to solve a problem, then get out there and solve those problems. Don't be afraid of doing it. And again, don't be afraid of the size of the companies that you're targeting or the clients or whoever, whatever type of business it is customers, the market that you're targeting, you need to stand up and be counted. And so it's a case of getting over that fear, waving your hands in the air and jumping up and down and letting people know you are there. And if people decide, hey, you know what, we don't want what you've got. You know, if you find yourself being told no by clients, well, then fine. What have you lost? Essentially nothing. A client that was never going to be a client isn't going to become a client. Um, so there you have it. All, all I got to say is you, you gave, man, people should be able to, people should have to pay for that, for, for this podcast. My goodness. You get, <laughs> you gave enough. You didn't, you didn't gave a whole coaching session, broke things down tactically. <laughs> like before we even go to our final, our final round, which is going to be quick. It's a rapid fire. Cause I know we, uh, we got it. We got to get some things done. I, I do want to, I want to transition real briefly. I have so, to say something real quick yes. before you do that. Yep. It's just is that I actually have a coach. I have somebody who's helped me a lot in terms of myself. It's a a man named Matthew Kimberly, and he's absolutely brilliant. So if you check out matthewkimberly.com, he is insane. Like he's just awesome with, in terms of what he can do in terms of um, sales, coaching, development, and that sort of thing. And so essentially everything that I've been through and gone through and learned has probably come through him. So I've got to shout him out. (laughs) Definitely. The link link for that will be in the show notes, as well as I know that you do you do some consulting you work do you work with so when you're when you're coaching consulting is that necessarily for individuals or for groups or because i know i'm gonna have the link to um your actual coach in on on the site too but i know you do some as well uh what do, what do you offer in terms of services outside of doodle because i know doodle they have and out the, the links will be in the show notes for for doodle direct and what you do there but as far as individuals do you have stuff that you offer and services you offer individuals as well 
Yes. So I do individual coaching at the moment. Um, so I, I work with clients on an individual basis, a very, very small handful of clients, um, granted, because I seem to be running out of time. Yeah, <laughs> not hours like... of the day. <laughs> um, so I work with them personally, usually creative business owners um, who essentially are looking to grow and develop in, in terms of their business. Um, I am working on or beginning to uh, start some group coaching um, and that will be online. So um, that, again, is distance coaching. So anybody can can jump in uh, and on board with that. And again, it's about business development. It's about making sure that you're not only you've got the business that you want, but you've got the business that you you know you're working so hard for, and you're getting the returns that you should be getting. Um, it's very easy for business owners to work 24 hours a day and see nothing in the bank. So it's about making sure that that doesn't happen. Um, and then also something that I've recently started and will be re- launching next month is specifically coaching on business and success pr- principles for dancers. Mm. And that's something that I've started called dance. It's called Dance Industry. And it's about helping professional dancers and dance based businesses to understand the basics of business sales and marketing, because actually that's the bit that they don't teach you. And you're a freelancer, just like a web designer is a freelancer, just like, you know, anybody else might be a freelancer and you're expected to run a business. But when you go to dance school or you're trained as a dancer, they'll there are no business learnings or teachings that you are given. So my uh, my goal is to be able to change that. And I'm setting up a platform on danceindustry.co.uk and that will be there to essentially help, again, dancers and those in the creative industry, because I imagine the same would apply to singers, to actors, you know, um, understanding how to have, you know, not only a successful career, to have not only a successful career, but also a career that, you know, you, you, you can stay in. You have some longevity behind it, Um, because, as you said, it's difficult to get into dance, let alone stay there. It's down to basic business principles, I've learned. So if you understand the business behind the dance, then you'll stay there. And my goal is now to be able to teach that to as many people as I can. Well, I'm I'm excited for that. I'll make sure I'm excited, man. That's you got some great, (laughs) great stuff. You already given well more than 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 enough for this audience man so i'm i'm just pump 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 and our last round of this show was a culture change round where it's a series of uh five rapid fire questions you can give me rapid fire answers or mid fire answers and then we wrap up <laughs> and then we wrap up the show all right all right uh, <laughs> what's the best piece of advice that you have never received um the best piece of advice that i've never received Probably to have a clear purpose, um, to know why it is that you do what you do. And of course, that's going to change over time and that's fine. But be clear in the first instance and know that every time you get up out of bed every morning and you're going to do something, know why it is that you're doing it. Don't do things blindly. Don't do things because you think it's the right thing to do. Don't do things because other people have told you that's what the right thing is to do. You need to know internally this is what I'm doing and this is why I'm doing it because that's what's going to drive you to take action and make sure you achieve whatever goal it is that you're going to set for yourself. Say less. If you Mm -hmm. can add one habit and take away one habit, what would they be? If I could add a habit, 
it would be, and I'm, I'm so rubbish at this. So I'd like to be able to go back to more fitness stuff. So I used to do Taekwondo as well. And I'm so rubbish at keeping up with my Taekwondo. I'd like to get back into the habit of just training in my martial arts because that was, it was really beneficial and I'd love to be able to do it, but for various reasons, it's not happening. Um, if I could take away a habit, it would probably be, and this is a bit of a strange one. It would probably be the idea of perfectionism. Um, I'm having to train myself out of everything being perfect. Mm -hmm. um, and I and that's been a, a process for me. And I think that happens to a lot of people because, again, when you're in an industry like the entertainment industry, you've got to be top of the line, world class. Everything must be perfect. Everything must be aligned. But actually, it doesn't have to be perfect. It just needs to work. That's as much as you need. It doesn't have to be perfect. It just needs to work. So the habit that I would like um, to get out of is this 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 idea this thing that everything's just got to be perfect love it it doesn't have to be perfect it just needs to work boom that's a that's yeah. a quote right there <laughs> what is your favorite book or movie and why ah i've got so many favorite books um oh gosh quite a few favorite movies as well <laughs> I always try to do the or because some people are like, well, I don't, yeah. I don't read like that. So it's like movie, whatever. So if you want, you can give your top two books. Top two books, probably. Um, and, and I mean, most of my reading is is business based. So, yeah, <laughs> they're going to be business books. They're going to be entrepreneurial books. Um, Seth Godin, who oh, is Seth a Godin. marketing god. He's the um, He really is. Um, so Lynchpin. Mm. by Seth Godin um, is an incredible read, as is, um, and I'm going to shout this out actually because this refers back to what we were talking about earlier. There's a book called You Can't Teach a Kid How to Ride a Bike at a Seminar. And it's a book about sales and how to sell. And it's by a man named David Sandler, and he developed something called the Sandler System. And it's a sales technique that I think everybody should know about because it's a way to sell without feeling sleazy and without feeling, you know, disingenuous. It's really, really solid sales strategy. So you should definitely read that. Um, and then third and finally, um, Jordan Belfort, the, the Wolf of Wall Street. <laughs> His books. His books are something else. Now, I loved reading them, but wow. If you want to understand a guy who just has the most, the strangest life, the most incredible life, the most awful life, and everything is sort of in between, then, you know, The Wolf of Wall Street or Catching the Wolf of Wall Street. I've just finished Catching the Wolf of Wall Street, and it was absolutely brilliant. So, yeah, try those. <laughs> oh, man, woo, I love that. I love bringing new heat. I ever heard you can't teach a kid uh, to ride a bike at a seminar, so I'm definitely going to have to cop that book. And yes. I'm going to make sure I put all that good stuff in the show notes. And our last two questions is, what is your biggest fear? What is my biggest fear? Um, what is my biggest fear? it's really difficult to say i i i mean i can't say that i'm fearless or can i <laughs> say yeah, that i'm hey, fearless you, you, you know? could say because, that <laughs> yeah you know i don't you know again I, I don't fear anything because you know if we're talking about the the kind of the bigger or the more grander kind of ideas in life a lot of people sort of fear failure or they fear death or they fear illness and that sort of thing um i believe that if it's going to happen it's going to happen and if you can solve it, you will solve it. 
And if you can't, then you can't. There's nothing you can do about it. So fear is almost a useless emotion. It's a useless, you know, energy drain. Being fearful of something um, doesn't help you. So actually, you shouldn't fear anything. You should either face that challenge head on and know that you can overcome it. And if you can't overcome it, don't beat yourself up about it. Just go a different route. That's it. Mm, love that love that love that and uh ah, man i can't ask the last question because the quarter change rock because if you're the president of the united states what's the first thing you would do so uh, <laughs> <laughs> i'm not gonna ask that but I was, oh man listen i yeah you can't ask that because politically in the united states right now you lot have really got it bad <laughs> <laughs> but uh as we end that i do always ask this as we close out this is the end this is the end um Everybody that, ha- that comes on my podcast, uh, I call a culture change agent because they're, they're changing the culture in their own in their own right. Wherever they're at, whatever industry they're in, they're changing the culture. So uh, this question decides around that. Uh, if you could change one thing about society, uh, what would it be and why? Wow, that's a great question because there are so many things I change about society. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think ultimately everything that's wrong with society um, boils down to insecurity. And if I could change anything about uh, society, I would make everybody secure in who they were, in where they came from, in what it is that they did, you know, in their heritage, in their culture. Because the moment you are secure is the moment that you're just, you know, you're making moves forward rather than sidestepping or treading on people or attempting to pull people down in order to make yourself look great, believing that you are greater than somebody else because you're insecure. Um, And I think a lot of what's happening in this world is down to the fact that people are insecure and the things that they believe solves insecurity include that power, include money, you know, and all that sort of idea. Power and money are great, but if you're not secure, then they're not going to stick around. And of course, you're ultimately not going to use it for any good. So, yeah, ideally, if I could wave a magic wand, I'd make everybody just secure with who they were and where they came from. Man, well, as we as we close this podcast, I can honestly say that this is this is one of the best podcasts that I've ever recorded. <laughs> I, I and I say I don't say that every, every and I, like I said, I love all my podcast guests. My podcast <laughs> guests they listen and be like, yo, for real? G yeah, you said it on mine. Chill, 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 chill. Uh cause every <laughs> but I can honestly say without a shadow of a doubt, this is one of the best podcasts I have ever recorded. I'm excited to put it out there and, and get it to our, our audience. So uh a last last thing is where can we find you at and and kind of what you do, your companies, etc. online. So you can find me um, on KimberlyJ.com. You can find my animation company on DoodleDirect.com. And also the dance industry stuff I'll be setting up. Currently, it's UK based, but don't worry, I'll be you know putting it out in the US. And that's DanceIndustry.co.uk. Um, so those are my three spaces. And of course, at KimberlyJ on any of the social. I'm, I'm on all the social media platforms. Whether I'm not, I'm very good at it is another thing. It remains to be seen. I'm not great at posting stuff, but when I do, you know, I like to think that people like it. So yeah, Instagram, on Facebook, on Twitter, at Kimberly J.
Mm, love that. So Minority Trailblazer Nation, uh, let's, uh, first of all, from the bottom of my heart, I want to thank you for, for your time this, uh, this thank afternoon. <laughs> thank you for having me. It's been uh, awesome. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And please, please get the, get, get everything right with the, with the teeth. That's, that's, man, that's like, yeah. yeah, I don't know. I don't want to ask how, I don't want to ask how that happened. <laughs> but, uh, as we always do in Minority Trailblazer Nation, I need you to do two things. One, make sure you leave a review and share this episode. Two, make sure you're changing the freaking culture. Good night.